much time wasting away Like phoenix wings for them Drops of water in rivers full Cut out all our oxygen Left a piece of your broken soul Your word to the bone Skin, knees, and stone Ticking in place. Check out Benny Ray's. Come on home to me. We've got places to be. Quit all this.
Cause I'm cautious Do damage to your cabbage That a doctor cannot pass See why you don't want no reason Like the back of a matchbook That if SS will fold you at your MacBook Close shows shut you down Before we go go backwards Act up And whether we high or low We gonna get back up Like the Dow Jones and NASDAQ Sort of like a thong and crack Come on Welcome to the Weekly Review with Roman Reimer. I hope everyone is having a good Friday so far. Today is August 21st, 2015. And we have a caller, Sarah Schulman, uh, who will be calling in uh, right now. And uh, hello. Hey, hi. How are you? It's Sarah. Hey, thank you so much for calling in. You know, I can't hear you. Okay, uh, let's see here. Uh, how's this? Can you hear me now? Nope. Uh, hello? Uh, hello? Uh, how about now? Okay. Let's see, is this any better? Slightly. Okay, I will speak up as best I can. Very muted, okay. Um, it's up as far as it can go right now. Uh, that's a bit of a problem. Um, let's see. Here. Uh, how's this? Any better? I can barely hear you. Okay. 
Um, it's the phone that we're working with here. Let's try it one more thing. And how's this? No. Is this any better right now? No. Oh, shoot. Alright. Um, I'm not quite sure what to do then. Uh, right now? Is this any better? Nope. Okay. Um, shoot, I'm sorry. I don't know what to do. Um, let's see. Okay. Uh, just, let's see. All right. Uh, if you, you still can't hear me at all? There we go. Oh, there we go. Okay. Wonderful. Awesome. Thank you. Now we have one slight problem. Yes. Alan Cummings, do you know who that is? Yeah, of course. Well, he bought the building next door, uh -huh. and he's turning it into—he's turning a four-story building into a home for him and his boyfriend. Uh, and they're doing construction, so there's this chainsaw. Oh goodness! Okay. That we may. You know what? I just lost you again. Hello. Yeah. Hello. For some reason, you were louder for a minute, and now you're muted again. Okay. Um, the the technology we have here isn't uh, top notch, so just doing the best that we can. Can you hear me now? Shoot. Um, I'm not sure what else to do. If yeah, yeah, I'm holding the cord uh, in the phone, best I can. Well, do you need to go out and get another cord, and then I'll call you back? Uh, this is. I mean, this is all we have here right now. We're we're pretty much bare bones at the studio. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's really unfortunate. Okay. Um, yeah, if you can't, let's see, uh, trying once more, is this any good? Can you hear me now? Nope. No. <sighs> Alright, um, yeah, this is, this is what we got here, so. Okay, well, we can't do it. Okay, alright, well, thank you. Alright, so, yeah. you'll have to email me when you, when you fix it, and we'll yeah. have another time. Alright, well, thanks very much for calling, Sarah. Okay. Well, that was extremely disappointing. Uh, so having difficulties with the phones here, uh, and that's really upsetting. was literally looking forward to having Sarah on the line. Um, uh, this is, that's r pretty upsetting. I'm pretty upset right now. Um, play some music and then figure out what we're going to do. All right. Uh, and here's the song, and we'll be back again in a little bit.
disappeared. Okay. It's a loose connection. Okay. Alright, um... So you can't hear me now, at all? I can okay. Um, we can try, if you want to call my cell phone, we can do speakerphone, if that works. Yeah, let's try that. Okay, I'll uh, send you my phone number. Just text me your cell phone number. Okay, thank you. try another way to do this uh thanks everyone for listening and we will uh yeah you know i say that every time on the show technology is you know not the easiest thing anyway long story short well we're gonna figure this out and find a new way of doing this so because we're gonna we're gonna make it happen right right okay in other news start off the show with janelle monet and uh, she is going to be, there's going to be a demonstration, finally getting to some news, right? Uh, this Sunday at 24th Street BART, um, Sunday starting at 1230. Uh, all right, here we go. Hello. Hi, okay. Uh, wonderful. Thank you so much for calling in, Sarah. Sure, no problem. Excellent. So, um there's quite a few things uh, I was hoping we, uh, you could speak about, um, just to get just to get right into it. Um, you did a lot of work in the in the '80s, certainly with uh, ACT UP, and so I find it's really important just to like help educate folks who are kind of coming up now, to just have an understanding of kind of where we came from, especially as part of the the queer consciousness, since a lot of our history has been, I guess, been taken away from us in a way. So I was hoping you could really? just speak about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, pretty much, I guess, when you, when you began, uh, uh, in, New, in New York, I suppose. Well, I was born in New York in 1958. You want me to start with my very first political experiences? Um, I would say, wh- whatever, like, the highlights that you would say, just, to, just uh, I know, I know there's, like, a lot to, to, to work from, uh, just wanted to get to the, um, the first things that come to mind, I suppose. Well, you know, I come from, uh, let's see, my, I mean, I, I, my family were immigrants, and my family was impacted on by the Holocaust, and so I was raised with, you know, a certain political sensibility about that. Um, I, don't, I don't know, okay, I'm not, I'm not sh- okay, you need to be more specific. Sure. Um, I would say... I guess get, getting into um, how folks began to, to mobilize um, around um, getting the, the government to start doing things in the, in the 80s and about how, how did the organizing kind of come about? Well, I mean, prior to AIDS, of course, there was a radical gay movement called the Gay Liberation Movement. And, you know, there's different ways of dating it. Some people think it started at Compton's Cafeteria in San Francisco, where there was a trans rebellion against the police. Some people dated from uh, resistance at the Stonewall Inn in New York City a few years later. Um, Some people dated back to sexology movements in Germany in the 1920s and 30s. But by the time I was in high school, there was a gay liberation movement that was visible and known in New York City. There was um, a, an op- 
an open cultural expression of gay liberation. There were plays, there were performances, there was, uh, there was all kinds of artistic expressions and there were political expressions. So probably my first participation would be in 1975 when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. I went to a gay pride rally in Washington Square Park with a friend of mine named Jenny Glasgow and she belonged to the Judson Church. And the minister of the Judson Church, Al Carmines, had just come out as openly gay. So she had a consciousness about gay things. Mm -hmm. And we went to this rally in Washington Square Park, and this is the famous rally where um, Sylvia Rivera took the stage, yes. where Vito Russo was the MC, where Bette Midler sang, you've gotta have friends. So that was my first gay event, I guess. Um, and that was a good introduction, <laughs> I would say. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah. Um, and when I was in college, I was in a group called the uh, Women's Union. This was in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And we did, we were part of the feminist movement of the mid-70s. So we did, we did actions. We did anti-rape actions. We brought speakers. We were involved with a, in a coalition with the uh, National Organization of Black Feminists. We were in, an, in a uh, racially charged neighborhood in which university students were basically gentrifiers, although I did not know the word at the time. Mm -hmm. Then I dropped out of there and I came back to New York and in 1979 I joined a newspaper called the called Woman News. Okay. Which was a feminist newspaper. It was from the feminist movement of gay and straight women together. Hmm. And I also wrote for Gay Community News, which was a left-wing gay and lesbian newspaper. And I wrote for The Guardian, which was the Marxist newspaper in New York City, and I wrote for the New York Native, which was the gay male newspaper. Okay. So there were a lot of newspapers <laughs> and a lot of different communities uh, that were very, very active, and there was enough news for all of those um, venues to cover. Excellent. In 1979, when I was 21, the Hyde Amendment uh, was approved by the Supreme Court, and this was the amendment that ended Medicaid funding for abortion. Yeah. So abortion became legal in New York in 1971 when I was in junior high school, and it became legal nationally in 1973 when I was in high school. And then Medicaid funding was taken away in 1979. So there really was only legal funded abortion for six years in the United States. Jeez. And I went to a demonstration because of the Hyde Amendment. And at that demonstration, I joined an organization called CARASA, which was the Committee for Abortion Rights and Against Sterilization Abuse. Mm -hmm. And that the reason it had that long, complicated name was because it was not a single-issue abortion rights movement, but it was what was called reproductive rights, in that it addressed the full range of rights that all women would need to control the reproductive lives. So this is what's now called intersectionality. Yes. But it was before that term existed. Um, in 1980, Ronald Reagan was elected. Yeah. And the something was put into place, which was called the Family Protection Act, which was an agenda of pro-family, quote, pro-family <laughs> politics. Um, uh, restrictions that had come
come to power because of Reagan's coalition with the religious right. So by 1982, he had dismantled a lot of programs, and there were quite a few attacks on women at that time. And there was a bill called the Human Life Amendment that would have made most forms of birth control and abortion illegal. So there was a hearing in Washington on this amendment, and no one who supported abortion rights was allowed to testify. So I went to the hearing with five other women, and we called ourselves the Women's Liberation Zap Action Brigade. Mm -hmm. We got into the hearing, which was on live television, which was, you know, this is before CNN and cable and all of that. And at a moment when a witness testified, a fetus is an astronaut in a uterine spaceship. (laughs) We jumped on our chairs and we said, because the bill was called uh, the human life statute so we yelled a woman's life is a human life yeah and we were on live television so we became the lead story on all three networks and this is of course before act up so this is before that kind of direct action you know had that level of national coverage we were arrested we were charged with disruption of congress And in fact, the guy who arrested me, his name was Billy Joe Pickett. Uh-huh. And it was really interesting because in our 11-day jury trial, he, he, you know, I said, a woman's life is a human life. Yeah. And he testified that I said, ladies should be able to choose. Uh. It was so interesting. It was a very interesting experience, um, you know, about how people hear things. Anyway, we were found guilty, but the judge, Harriet Taylor, was the mother of Lauren Taylor, who was a big lesbian activist in Washington, D.C., and we were sentenced to one-year probation. So I guess that was the beginning of a stellar career. (laughs) Wow, I think that's awesome. I mean, it brought me through many, many movements and, um, you know, to where I am today. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Well, that's incredible. And I, uh, one thing that I was curious about, this kind of is maybe jumping around a little bit, um, but I was speaking to an activist here um, who did a lot of work in the environmental activist realm, and she was saying a lot of the times through government, they kind of, as a ways to bring people down is to kind of inflame the divisions that already exist within um, activist communities. And I was curious if you well, could speak to that at all. you know, there was COINTELPRO. Yes, yes. And COINTELPRO is a documented government program that was used to destroy the black liberation movement in the United States through infiltrators and also through assassination. Yes. However, uh, in terms of the white left, I, I really think that um, we've been more dis- destructive to ourselves in many cases than government... Um, Infiltration. I mean, I've seen the FOIA on ACT UP. A lot of it is redacted. Mm -hmm. So we do know that there were people who were giving information. But frankly, having, you know, I'm the co-director of the ACT UP Oral History Project, and I've interviewed 187 members of ACT UP over a 15-year period. And I really believe that the, the divisions were created by our own human contradictions and anxieties. I don't think that in our case there were outside, um, we don't think we needed any help from the outside. I see. I see. 
Cool. I was hoping, I know you've done a lot of work in terms of the, what's going on in the Middle East right now and with uh, Palestine, and I was hoping you could speak about that a little bit. Okay, what do you want to know? Um, just in terms of your travels, um, I've never been to the Middle East, and I was just curious, in, ter in terms of your travels out there, um, what, um, how, I guess, I guess I don't have a really specific question, just wanting to... Um, well, I can tell you what I'm doing right now yes, regarding yes, of it. Yes, Okay, so right now, I mean, I've been, in, in, I've been involved with Palestine not very long, mostly since 2009. Okay. And I think I was very late coming to the issue, and I'm ashamed of that, actually. I think it, I waited too long. But anyway, now I'm there, and I am... Um, Faculty, among a number of things, I'm faculty advisor to Students for Justice in Palestine at my school, the College of Staten Island. Mm -hmm. Now, what's been really interesting uh, there is that our SJP, Students for Justice in Palestine, is mostly Palestinian. Mm. And what's been really, you know, these, these are young people whose families are under a great deal of duress. And the experience of working with them for a number of years and watching what they are, what they go through, has been really profound. Uh, just a few weeks ago, the president of SJP went to Palestine to visit her grandmother, and was stopped by the Israeli border police, who told her, "We know that you are the president of Students for Justice in Palestine at the College of Staten Island." And they denied her entry and wrote on her passport uh, that she cannot enter Israel for 10 years. Uh, and I thought, you know, it's amazing. No one in the United States has ever heard of the College of Staten Island, but the Israeli <laughs> government seems to care about what a 21-year-old, you know, college student is doing. Um, the kind of, so that showed me how significant the work that these kids are doing really is. Yeah. And then, you know, just the other day, another girl who's in the uh, organization, her first cousin is Mohammed Alan, who is um, a hunger striker mm -hmm. in Israel right now. He's a 31-year-old lawyer who was held in administrative detention without charges or trial and went on hunger strike. And it was on the front page of the New York Times a few days ago. He, he finally had permanent brain damage, and only then would they release him. So this is her first cousin. So, you know, I, in, in supporting the students and their families, I really uh, get access to that experience in a way that I didn't before. And it's incredibly upsetting. You know, the, the um, injustice is just devastating. Yes. And so, so that is a real lesson, you know. And other than that, I'm on the advisory board of Jewish Voice for Peace, mm -hmm. which is the largest Jewish um, anti-occupation organization, I think, in the world. I'm not sure. And it's a quite fascinating experience. Being a New Yorker, I never belonged to a Jewish organization before because I didn't have to. Yes. And here I am at age 57, finally in a Jewish organization. So it does push some buttons, I have sure. to admit. Sure. But um, the, the, the leadership or Extraordinary. The woman, Rebecca Vilcomerson, who's the executive director, is just a fantastic leader. And there's a lot of really interesting questions on the table. One thing is that JVP, as it's called, Jewish Voice for Peace, just hired a lobbyist to work in Washington. Hmm. So clearly people feel that it is possible yeah. to have an impact on um, U.S. policy. Yes. You know, I personally think that Israel is unlikely to change, but that the United States is in a process of change. Yes. And when you look at 
you know, who supports Israel now, it's mostly the Republican Party and Christian fundamentalists. So the chances of changing U.S. military, you know, uh, spending on the Israeli government, I think that this is becoming increasingly possible. And so I'm quite optimistic on this end. That's great. Another thing that I'm interested in is rebranding the term Jewish vote. Hmm. Jewish vote used to mean a vote for Israel, but I don't—I personally don't think it does anymore. Yeah. I think that most American Jews are, are pretty disgusted or at least disturbed by the Netanyahu government. Yeah. And it's mostly Christian Zionists who are supporting mm-hmm. Israel. And I would love the Jewish vote, the words Jewish vote, to mean a vote against the Netanyahu government, which I think it actually does. Yes. So, 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 you know, there's interesting things to do there, and it's moving, and it's important. Yes. Wow. Okay. Um, so, oh, okay, so um, I'm not jumping around some more. Um, so I've read quite a few of your books, and there's one in particular I'm hoping we could speak about, and that's The Ties That Bind. Mm-hmm. Uh, about familial homophobia. So, um, first of all, thank you for writing that and just how important it is to, I guess, begin understanding the, the impacts that uh, families have on one's just self-assuredness and even sense of self in, in this mm-hmm. culture, certainly. Thank you. Yes, yes. So, um, I was curious as to um, not necessarily what prompted you to, to, to write the book, but anything that kind of came about that surprised you while you were writing it? Well, it took me a long time to write it. I think I spent 13 years writing it because it was an experience that every single queer person I knew had engaged with in one form or another, and yet no one had ever analyzed it, and in fact, there was no name for it. I had to coin the term familial homophobia because everyone just called it it. Yes, yes. So, you know, when there's a phenomena that no one knows how to, to describe or that has never been um, articulated, it's a lot harder to write about it. You have to carve it out of invisibility. But it's much, it's incredibly gratifying to have those breakthroughs where you start to be able to describe things that other people, they know those experiences. They recognize them immediately. They just don't have the words for it. And when you're the writer, that's your job, right? Is yes. to provide those words. So it was very, very gratifying. And, you know, people responded incredibly to that book. I mean, you know, I've been writing for, my first book came out in 84. So I've been writing for whatever that is, 31 years I've been publishing. and. I've always had an really, really personal and intimate relationship with readers where I feel that people care about what I'm saying. They engage with it in an interactive way. They want to talk to me about it. They have disagreements. They have criticisms. They, they're invested. Um, and it's been incredibly enriching. And when I look at mainstream writers and I see that their readers don't really care and that the stakes are low, I just mm. think, you know, why would anyone want to spend their time doing that? Absolutely. Yeah, after all the, the energy and the time that goes into putting something out there, yeah, why wouldn't you want to say something that's personal? Well, why wouldn't you want to grapple with something that matters? Yes, you yes. Know? Absolutely. So what's uh, what's next for you? Well, there's so much going on right now. Um, 
Let's see. I have a new novel coming out in March 2016. It's called The Cosmopolitans, mm -hmm. and it's being published by the Feminist Press. You know, it's my 17th book, wow. and I think this is a really good one. And I, and I don't usually say that. Yeah. Um, you know, I often don't know how I feel about my books, but this one I think I, I've really gotten something, something, you know, that people will be able to... Um, will find enriching. It's kind of, it's like a conventional literary novel, you know, it's like a page turner and it has one of these driving plots and everything, but it's set in Greenwich Village in 1958. And, you know, it does its job as a novel in that you have, a, I think there's a good story and I think that there's engaging characters, but there's also like larger stories that are being told. So one is about, you know, life in old New York. I mean, it's post-World War II New York and it's, it's the New York of mix, of, um, it's an open city, it's cheap, there's a lot of different kinds of people living there together and they're producing a new world. And I think that people are want to know about what's possible. A lot of what's possible in cities is being taken away from people through gentrification. Absolutely. And, yeah, that's happening and here. And I think that this is um, something that people will really enjoy, and I also hope it will open their minds a little bit. You know, it, and it's a historical novel. It's historical fiction. I'm not a historian. I'm undisciplined. But it's about, you know, race and class and sexual culture in urban New York in the 1950s. And there's a lot there to grapple with, quite yes. a bit. Yes. But there's also an emotional text to the story, and it, it's about people who suffered in the past and how they act out the consequences of that suffering on people in the present who are mm. not the ones who caused it. Yes. You know, so I, I think it's, I, I'm happy with it. And Feminist Press has been doing an amazing job. Like, they are very small, and they have no money. You know, they're part of the City University of New York. Okay. But, but they have done a, a phenomenal job. I mean, they put out a bound galley 10 months before publication, They've just been incredible. So working together there has been a really, really good experience. I just think it's, I, I feel good about it. I think it's going to be a book that people will like. Excellent. So that's exciting. And I'm finishing this kind of mammoth, epic, life's work, nonfiction book. Oh. That's called um, Conflict is Not Abuse. Ah. And the subtitle is Overstating Harm and the Duty of Repair. Um, this is, you know, like the culmination of my whole life, this book. And right now I have a very, very coherent 360-page draft. So I'm in the process of trying to find a publisher. And uh, when I do, you know, whoever it is, I'm sure will make me rewrite it. And then hopefully it'll be out in a t I hope it'll be out in a timely schedule. But basically, you know, I'm looking at how this, how... Well, the difference, you know, first of all, that there is a difference between conflict and abuse. And the difference is that conflict is power struggle, mm. and abuse is power over. I see. And these are two very different experiences. But in our contemporary moment, we often pretend that power, that conflict is in fact abuse. In other words, we, we overstate harm. Mm-hmm. To, to position ourselves um, as people who are not contributing 
to the escalation of um, distress. And I find that this takes place in the most like daily conflicts between individuals and it, it, you can trace this all the way through up into uh, geopolitics. Mm. So, you know, for example, if you and I have um, a misunderstanding and I want to talk about it, yes. and you're hiding behind email and text, yes. and I know that you've misunderstood me, but you won't allow me to talk to you, and you won't, te- you won't tell me what you think, and you won't hear what I think, um, because you're hiding behind technology, and I really want you to hear what I have to say, then you could say I'm harassing you. Oh, okay. Okay, that huh. kind, what I just described, yeah. that happens every day now. Oh, wow. Because we, we use words like harassment, stalking, abuse, all this kind of stuff, when that's not what's happening. I see. We use them when we don't want to face ourselves to understand why we're contributing to a conflict. When our own anxieties from our past experiences need to be dealt with, but yes. instead we'd rather blame them on the other people in the present. Yes. So in the most intimate realm, that's how it plays out. I see. But the, the problem is larger than just how it affects two people. Because in the, in the ways our societies are constructed now, when people refuse to solve problems because they can't resolve their anxiety, it gives more power to the state. Mm. So let me give you an example. Um, as you may know, there's this new phenomena called HIV criminalization. Yes, yes. And, you know, it, it exists in certain parts of the United States in haphazard ways, but it's been systematized in Canada where it's now the law of the land. And basically, it says that if, if a person who's positive has sex with a person who's negative and does not disclose their status, even if they use a condom, even if no one gets infected, they still broken the law. <sighs> and in Canada, there's now uh, more than 150 people in jail under this, um, this situation. But what's interesting about this is that for 30 years, HIV-negative people were conceptualized as people who are responsible for protecting themselves. Yes. And now, the, law, the state is saying, no, you are no longer that person. You are now someone who's been criminally wronged. So what's happening is the state is co-opting HIV-negative people Mm -hmm. to identify with the state apparatus of punishment against HIV-positive people. And this is a model for a lot of things that are happening in in the queer world. But we're seeing certain sectors of the queer world are being invited into the U.S. government apparatus, into the yes. state apparatus of punishment, to join the military yes. and be, participate in immoral wars against Muslims around the world, to um, identify as citizens, you know, in opposition to undocumented people, for example. Yes. So what we're seeing is this division now where there's like a new queer there's a new abject object. There, you know, white gay people, if they get married or they have children, they re-enter whiteness. There's a kind of white reconciliation now that's available there. But for people who are not in families, who are not white, who are not documented, who are HIV positive, who are, you know, some trans people, these are the people now who are the objects of punishment. And the 
other people are being invited in to participate in, in control of punishment. Because basically, we don't have a mechanism for interrupting escalation. Yeah. All we try to do is figure out who's the perpetrator, who's the victim, and who should be punished. Right. It's right. all punishment-oriented. Yes. When you look at the way, so then, you know, I, I, in the book I discuss how this plays out in domestic violence rhetoric and in domestic violence law. And what you're finding now, um, and this is really, was really interesting to me to learn this, uh, there was a study done by gay and lesbian anti-violence projects that found that when the police are called to the homes of same-sex couples for domestic violence, mm -hmm. 43% of the time they arrest the wrong person. Oh, my God. Like now, you know, it's so easy to access the system that um, according to Catherine Hodes, who is a domestic violence um, advocate in New York City, she, she told me that perpetrators now call, call the police and file for restraining orders as part of the harassment process. Yes. They're often the first to contact the police or to initiate contact with the police. So we ha so now, if somebody has a restraining order, it does not mean that they are the person who's being victimized, because this whole apparatus is designed not to stop the escalation that produces violence, but instead to punish after the fact. Mm. Well, what causes domestic violence in the first place? I mean, in the 1960s, when the feminist movement against violence emerged, they said it was caused by patriarchy, poverty, and racism. Mm -hmm. Well, figuring out you know, how to incarcerate, incarcerate more black men, which has been one of the outcomes of these laws, does not address patriarchy, poverty, and racism. It's simply punitive. Yes. And, and so, you know, this is, is part of this whole process of people not being able to take responsibility, or of a society not being able to take responsibility for our own anxieties. So if people who are HIV negative, if there was a discussion for people who are HIV negative to say, why are we so stigmatizing a virus that in this day and age is not the worst thing that could ever happen to you? Yeah. Especially when we know how to prevent it. Yes, yes. So why are we so anxious and so punitive towards people who have it? That is the question that the society should be asking itself, not how do we get more HIV-positive people in jail. Right. But we're asking the wrong questions because we don't want to look at ourselves. Yes. You know, so one of the things I go into in this book is why don't we want to look at ourselves? I just thought, when I say we, I don't just mean individuals, but I mean cliques, yes. families, religious groups, and entire nation states. Yes. Because right now we have this rhetoric that only if you are 100% purely innocent and victimized are you um, eligible for compassion. Mm. If in any way you acknowledge that you are contributing to a misunderstanding or you are escalating rather than facing yourself, you are not eligible for compassion. But instead of, the, because we're on this, um, you know, purely evil, purely good dichotomy that yeah. has nothing to do with what people are really like. Right, right. So that's what this book is about, and I take it through HIV criminalization, domestic violence, police violence, and um, Israel-Palestine and the, the bombing of Gaza. 
so um, I think I, I think I've done some really good work there, and you know, I, I think the book is really deep. I really do. I think I really looked into my heart, and uh, I think it's going to be helpful for people. But I don't have a publisher yet, so you know, I'm hoping it'll be out sometime in, in 2016 or 17. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, well, so I can't wait know, to read it. Pardon me? I can't wait to read it. Yeah, thank you. So, you know, and then I have a million other projects, you know, like I'm organizing a series at the Center for Lesbian and Gay Studies on um, queer people of color and gentrification in New York City. Mm-hmm. And we've already set up two events and we're going to do a lot more. So that's exciting. And I'm involved in this movie called Jason and Shirley that was directed by Stephen Winter. That is a, um, it's an imagining of the making of a classic experimental film called Portrait of Jason that was made in 1966, which is the first film ever about a black gay man, and it was made by a white woman filmmaker, Shirley Clark. Hmm. So in our film, I play Shirley Clark, and Jack Waters plays Jason Holliday, and we reenact the original um, filming, where we imagine what it was like when the film was made. So our film, Jason and Shirley, which opened at BAM in June, is going to be at the Museum of Modern Art for a full week, which is really great and unusual. Um, That's October 20th to 27th. So that's exciting. And, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I have a lot of stuff going on. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm I'm constantly... uh, I just appreciate all the work that you've done and continue to do and it's it's really awesome to have folks like that in the community to look up to and to learn from certainly thank you well you know it's uh when i first came out older queer people were very very oriented towards younger ones and building community because of course a lot of us didn't have families Mm -hmm. and those multi-generational relationships were very very important yes and also because I came up in a grassroots community, not an academic community, so open discussion was a very important thing. Um, you know, the sharing of ideas. And so the, now that I'm older, these values are just completely natural to me, and, I, and I, I, they're precious to me. They're so important. Yes. Oh, well, thank you so much for calling in and for sharing um, all this information with us. Sure. Thank you so much. All right. Take yes. care. All right. You too. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, so once again, uh, that was uh, Sarah Schulman. Um, she has written quite a few books, plays. Um, she's a professor, an activist. Um, definitely um, look her up and read a lot of the things that she's written. Um, I can't tell you how uh, much more informed I am just from knowing her and reading her work and it's so important I think also just to to talk to folks who have done the work and just to learn about where we've come from and then where we can go and other work that we can do so I was so glad we were able to to hear from her and we're going to play a song now and then we'll be joined by Ribri who will grace us with some music and spoken word possibly and just all around goodness so here's here's a song and we'll be coming back in a little bit
welcome back. We're here with Ribri. Hello. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Yes. Good to be here. Yeah. So, uh, is there anything you want to... Uh, ch- uh, you're a local artist. Yep. And we met uh, at the... At Perch Coffee House at the Spectrum Queer Media um, mic, which happens on Tuesdays. Uh, yeah. And I'll get you some... I'll get you some uh, headphones. And... Oh, yeah. Right over there. There we go. Uh, super professional here. That's that's how I roll. <laughs> oh, I'll plug those in. Good times. Good times. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, if you'd like. Whatever you want to share. Sure. Um, I'm a homo. Oh, excellent. <laughs> um, I live in the East Bay, and I've been uh, living in the East Bay on and off for seven years. Born in San Diego. Um, had the great fortune of connecting with a lot of uh, radical and beautiful people in the Bay, and um, have been learning ever since. And um, very thankful to be here and get to share what comes through me and um, give give what I can, do the best that I can do. Oh, awesome! Well, we're very we're very lucky to have you. So I'm gonna play some songs. Excellent. Do I gotta wear the headphones or no? Oh, you don't have to. Okay. <laughs> we just have them on. Uh, we have them just so folks can hear themselves when they speak. Okay. So, yeah. so I'm gonna just start off with a, a few of my um, shorter, simpler songs and then get a little more into it. Sixteen, I think. Oh wow! 
Yeah. <laughs> How long have you been playing? I've been playing music since I was 15. I started playing drums, and then uh, the drum set got repossessed. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and my brother had a guitar. He never played, so I just picked it up, and I started teaching myself. And um, whenever I started playing drums, I knew that that was it for me, yeah. that, that music was going to be the rest of my life, and that I had no desire to do anything other <laughs> than play music and, and, of course, learn about a lot of things. And, and um, yeah. yeah. You know, it's been, uh, I've had great inspiration from all the horrible and incredible things in life, and, and um, a lot of that comes through my music. And Yeah. You find it, it's uh, therapeutic? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Music totally saved my life, you know. I was, um, my family was um, essentially displaced from San Diego after a series of many deaths and, um, a couple of people being shot down the street from my house and um so we ended up moving to this tiny town in Idaho huh. which was a a really huge culture shock to me and I had never been around so many white people and uh I I became really really depressed and um on the brink of suicidal and was just around I had never experienced racism before I had never I'd never, I, I knew it existed, yeah. but you know, where I was from in San Diego, that just, that wasn't there because it was mostly Latino community. And I come from a multiracial family and just was, it kind of blew my mind and I already hated school and then I hated yeah. school even more. Yeah. And, um, and then I, then I got put on probation. And so I was, you know, pretty, pretty young to, and I'm very thankful for this experience because it exposed me to what the system's really all about and that there was no justice in that and most of the kids in that, um, you know, were just kids who didn't have enough things to do. They didn't have stimulation. They weren't learning things they wanted to learn. I sure was not learning things I wanted to learn and doing things I wanted to do. And, um, and they kept extending my probation because I would smoke weed and... <sighs> And I was like, this is the only thing that's helping me. Right, Smoking right. weed, playing music, and being in the woods is the only thing yeah. that is making me want to live. So three amazing things. Yeah, <laughs> three beautiful all things. all medicinal in their own way. Totally, totally saved my life. And, and um, yeah, in retrospect, very grateful to have been put on probation and just kind of just started my my journey in um becoming aware yeah of what what's really going on and um how this system really functions and yeah. um and what it does to people and that uh there's there's no justice there's no justice system <laughs> no i i hate that it's i mean there's a lot of things that frustrate me but then the fact that it's called that it even has this front as if it's supposed to you know right. cause ju or like provide justice mm -hmm. when it's so crooked yeah. and backwards in so many ways mm -hmm. yeah really very corrupt yes and uh yeah so so from then i a friend of mine over the internet gave me a the book evasion from crime think which okay. was just it's just somebody's diary who hitchhiked around and dumpster dived and mm -hmm. you know picked out of free piles and stuff and i was like i want to do that yeah and i didn't know people actually did that and that that's where I 
you know, got the motivation to just go hit the road. And um, as soon as I could leave, as once I was off probation, I, I left and I started traveling and uh, just lived out on the street and um, ended up coming to the Bay because a, a friend of mine was one of the last tree sitters at um, the tree sit that happened on UC Berkeley campus. Mm. Uh, I forget the years. I think it was between 2007 and 2009. I think it was a little sooner than that. But it was the longest urban tree sit at Richardson Grove and um, in the United States. And uh, they ended up cutting down the trees. And um, it was... It is still it, uh, um, an Ohlone burial ground. Mm. So there's so many incredible, beautiful people, you know, who who came together in that space for, you know, for all the right reasons. And that um, that's where I really, really felt like I came into family and community, and like I came into the people who I needed to meet to like really um, just continue my journey in uh, fighting and doing what I can do, the best I can do to fight the system. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, so, yeah, so ever since then, I've, I've, I've continued traveling all around, and I, I've, I've played on the street for many years, and um, now I'm kind of playing more and more shows and happy to be here and playing on the radio. And yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> doing that kind of stuff. Cool. So. Yeah. Well, would you like to play another? Yeah. Something that Sarah Shulman said about, um, like, why don't we want to look at ourselves? And, yeah. like, not, not just on the individual, but clicks and this kind of thing. This, this song was um, inspired by a group of people who I considered friends at one point, but I, I realized they didn't want to look at themselves. They didn't want to look at how their... Um, clicky mentality was really ostracizing to a lot of really good people and you know and that they were isolating queers though they themselves were queers and Mm. yeah so it was all messed up so I wrote this song for like trying trying I was trying to write a letter to these people but uh ended up writing this song that is more to the like the gems I see in those um clicks that maybe aren't just not um their eyes are not open yet to what's actually going on in those clicks and that people are not not looking at themselves and having like some critical thinking and so Distracting 
words to say just I'm in awe <laughs> so I, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I have some music on the internet yeah yeah and, um, where can folks find your I work? I am pretty disorganized when it comes to the technology and but I'm, I'm trying to get it together and it will be happening soon um, as for right now you can find my music on SoundCloud soundcloud.com slash tree which is r-y-b-r-e-e T-R-E-E. And um, I got some some other places too, but I'm, I'm trying to find a different music name. Yeah. And uh, that just hasn't come to me yet. Yeah, I think it, it probably will. Mm-hmm. Just, just got to keep listening moment. Yeah. and open to it. Yeah, maybe it'll come in a dream. 
Yeah. I find that sometimes uh, a lot of ideas and maybe solutions come to me in dreams. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dreams. Yeah. song is about a bird that I became really good friends with named Bertle <laughs> and uh, we would talk with each other all the time and he was a very unhappy bird born and raised in captivity and uh, tried to he tried to drown himself a couple times in front of my eyes it was a really very very strange experience um, and really sad and uh, I didn't know how to like respond to it you know and but he was very clearly trying to drown himself it didn't work though but um i wrote this song for him and uh and he got free mm. eventually oh, yeah Yeah. 
He he ended up um somebody forgot that he was on their head 
Uh-huh. And they walked outside and he flew away. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, so he at least got, you know, a few days. Somebody saw him eating cat food a few days later, so oh. he at least got a few days of being out in the open sky. Yeah. Wow. And that's what he wanted. Of he course. told me all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Why wouldn't he? Right. Who wants to be in a cage? Nobody. 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 So this next song is called Stamped. Love her. 
about your songwriting process. I don't know if you like speaking about that or sure. not, or if it's, um, so do you tend to, I know it's a common question, like, do you, like, focus on the lyrics? Or do you have, like, a tune in your head? Like, how do they combine? Most of the time, it's, um, you know, I'll, uh, my guitar is totally my best friend, and so most of the time, I'll just go to my guitar, no matter what I'm feeling, feeling good, feeling bad, all within those, you know, that yeah. whole spectrum, and some some music will come through. I'll yeah. find some some sounds that I really like, and and um, and then words will usually follow that and uh, come through, kind of aligned with whatever the sound is of the the music and whatever the feelings I'm feeling are. Um, occasionally, I'll I'll have some music, and then we'll look through my notebooks, and there will be words that just happen to go along with it. Yeah. And so, yeah. Cool. But yeah, it's. Most of my, I most of my music oh. I kind of consider sad because most of, um, music really helps me move through the the harder emotions. Sure. And um, the, and helps me to to feel joy even even through those, those feelings and even you know, no matter what's going on like music, reminds me I'm alive and that there there is joy in the world and that you know that's that's why we strive and that's why we struggle and that's why we all do the best we can do to to fight the shit because because there is joy yes and absolutely yeah so and there, a lot of joy comes from just expressing oneself certainly being able to share that with people yeah yeah I find. Mm-hmm. like i find similar similarly like with with theater like mm-hmm. it definitely feels therapeutic a lot of the time and then being able to have like the audience there certainly and have like a symbiotic relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. It's therapeutic for the audience. And yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Some of some of my like most fulfilling moments of my life is when people have cried when I've played music and like just like okay, yeah. I'm doing doing something yeah, right. I'm almost there. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely almost there. <laughs> I gotta couple songs that I wrote just recently. Yeah. Rise, I'm a 
thankful that song came through because I was kind of in a a rut. <laughs> oh yeah. Or just feeling clogged up. Yeah. I was like oh yeah I just gotta keep singing. <laughs> yes, yes. No matter what is going on in the world no matter how many people are walking around like zombies it's I gotta just keep singing. Yes yes and hopefully folks will wake up. Yeah And hopefully. I think sometimes when people do listen to music or see art they do begin to wake up. Mm-hmm. Yeah totally. Yeah. So this is another new song. 
I remember how it starts. <laughs> times and I ah oh, I love it what's the name of it Does oh it doesn't have, have a name oh, yet. okay yeah 
but Excellent. yeah, I, I paraphrase a lot of people in that song. Yeah. My mom, mm-hmm. um, a good friend of mine, Asada Shakur, in a poem to her mother, um, and this saying from that my friend learned in a witch's coven when she was 13. Yeah. That says, that which you seek within, you'll never seek without. Huh. And I didn't understand it for a while, and I'm, it's, it's sinking in a lot huh. more. Now. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, I love it. So let's see what else I got here. This song, this song's called Ancient Magic Wisdom.
<laughs> wonderful. That's a pretty old song, too. Yeah. Do you feel like your style has changed at all as you've grown? Uh, yeah, I've definitely gone through a lot of, a lot of, I feel like a, it's just going to continue to change and yeah. I'll probably come back to some styles and, sure. and be behind some others. And, cool. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. It's, whatever, whatever, whatever cycle I'm in, you know, it's like usually what, what, what will come through the music. Yeah. Great. So we're kind of approaching the end of the program. Okay. So I uh, thought you could uh, play us off. And uh, also you're welcome to do, uh, you did a spoken word piece on, on Tuesday, which is awesome, which you're welcome to do as well. I don't want to pressure okay. you, but you're welcome to do that. Let's see. There's um, a song that I really want to play. Okay. Yeah. So maybe if you want to do a spoken word piece and then play a song off. And in the meantime, okay. I'll say uh, we're doing a show here on Saturday, which also is going to invite you to perform in if you're interested. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tomorrow night. Uh, Saturday, August 22nd, here at Mutiny Radio, 8 to 10 p.m., Blackberry Singer, Baruch Perez Hernandez, Jesus You Better Work Fuentes, Felix Lee, um, I will be here, Molly Trad will be here, Bonnie Johns will be here, and Rebri, if you, if you would like to play, we would love to have you. Oh, it'll be awesome. There'll be food. It'll be a good time. We're going to just celebrate the good things uh, that we can celebrate, which is a lot of art and bringing people together. So, yeah, excellent. Yay, sweet. Yeah, I would I would like to do that. Oh, uh, awesome! That spoken word piece, and then and then I got one more song. Oh, perfect! Excellent. So, should I tell a story about it? Sure. Yeah. So this um this piece came through um after participating in a march that was um protesting the tear gas canisters that the Israeli military uses against people. They shoot people with these tear gas canisters. Um, which, of course, our U.S. government is funding and shipping out of Oakland every week. There's a giant barge that, is, that ships out tear gas canisters. Um, and a, an environmental activist um, named Tristan Anderson was in Palestine taking pictures of the apartheid wall and documenting how they're um, cutting down the olive trees and essentially committing genocide and... Um, and he got shot in the head with one of these tear gas canisters. And um, he lived and is now in a wheelchair and um, needs, like, constant um, caregiving. And he's, you know, of course not the same person anymore. And um, But he's still really beautiful and he's still really, like, you know, everything that he cares about is still with him, and he's still a vegan. That was one of the things when he was in the hospital when he could barely talk. He said, is that vegan? <laughs> with the food. Um, but, yeah, so we were all at this march, and um, at the end of the organized march, a, f- a group of people who were close to Tristan all went back to the Israel consulate where where the march had began, and... Um, people were dancing and singing and they targeted one person in specific who was very instrumental during that tree sit. Her name um, at the time was Dumpster Muffin. Um, They attacked her and we all went. I was one of the nearest people to her and I I got smacked in the ribs with a baton and they they essentially beat the shit out of everyone, everyone that was there and arrested many people. I got arrested and we were all going to court for... um, Two felonies, one being assault on an officer, of course, lies, the other being lynching, 
which is just the most disgusting fucking shit to me, um, which is unarresting a person. But so anyway, this 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 poem came through. This is a lesson I promised I wouldn't do to myself again. I should have been smarter. I should have read up. My hat wasn't worth it. I left it on the BART one day. Months after it happened, it was gone just like that. No problem. Move on. Because one day it wouldn't stick to me. But these imprints on my tissue and I feel it in my bones. My roots have been shaken from their original pose. And now I'm in a tight spot. Where the cement won't allow mountains to mold from my feet, but still I sit and breathe and listen. And maybe if I could feel more, I'd be able to speak with these limited amount of words they have given me and explain to you what it is I really mean. Even though I know what it is I'm giving you as you sit across the courtroom, you are preparing. You lie all the time, but you don't count on my love and my smile pushing against your eyeballs and holding you tight because your path is narrow and now you cower with fright in the middle of your straight lines. The trees only bending closer to hold your hand and pick you up to show you what's become of the land and the destruction will sink you down like I see in your eyes and you tried to hold face but not even seconds you could look in mine because I represent every soul you've ever hurt. I'm a shining light you tried to put out and got burned and now my soul is karmically tied to yours and my song will echo through your soul for centuries. It is a song of countless victims you will learn from me. I am merely a mirror reflecting mirrors reflecting mirrors and the only way you can't see us is because you keep shielding your eyes and shielding your mind but soon not the bone muscle of flesh of your hand will keep out the light of the infinite friends they are around me and they are so kind as to remind me every day here we are and every day here we will be to make the change i'm still thinking of you in your blue plaid shirt your head looks smaller or maybe it's just when you were threatening to put me on the ground and your fingers were jail bars around my arms i felt smaller the shadows of all your goblins and demons tried to force my light into the darkness, but instead brought me to a woman who needed to hear my song before the heartless and to my friend's side because it was the two of us in that room and the two of us in that cell and the two of us to know what happened and you know what happened. You saw my eyes before I saw yours, but I really see your eyes. Beaming fairly, a dull gray of your blank sadness, and I hold you dear to my heart, and I ache to you, but I hold you responsible in my brain for the things you choose and accountable for your neglect and what you refuse, like your feelings and my soul open to you. I think and wonder who it was that closed you off. Before you were bald, before you wanted to become a cop, I think and wonder what kind of art form behind your blue eyes and if the sky was ever more than a shield for your square life. Hitting corners every time and someone told you you can only make rights, but you are spirals and crisscross and points of an infinite star and rainbows and feathers and the blood in my veins and the energy on my fingertips and the bird song. So you see, I hear you all the time. I breathe you and I feel you. Do not take this as something inside significant i am writing this down as the universe's instrument you will hear me long after they drop the charges because i will share this officer greenwood i wonder if he's still an officer here in san francisco <laughs> oh thank you for that oh oh officer greenwood officer greenwood yep Okay, so I got 
One more song. Yeah. Thank you so again so much for being here. Totally. And Thank we'll you see you tomorrow night here at Mutiny Radio. Uh, everyone stay tuned. Coming up next is Global Val with Women's Magazine, followed by the Common Thread Collective here at Mutiny Radio. Everyone have an awesome week and we'll be back. We won't be here next week, but the week after. So take care. Thanks and everyone for listening. And thank and you so much, Ruby, for coming here yeah. and sharing your art. <laughs> If I remember this And how could I forget When the moon lets me fly As I sing to her every night Love is all I know So why can't I let go Of this human shit in my brain I'm trying to poop out righteously to remember this is all just an illusion got to remember this is all just an illusion got to remember this is just a part of our evolution And I know we're not done As the sun travels through the sky I feel the magic from the
tell me what food relieves insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite? I'm going to guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Actually, Alex, the food I'm talking about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby. There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternative to smoking. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby. Good. Because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again. And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4altacalifornia.com. That's 4altacalifornia.com for a non-addictive pharmaceutical-free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4altacalifornia.com. Join us every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. for Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse here on Mutiny Radio. I'm your host, Pam Benjamin, bringing you the best of San Francisco's underground comedy scene here every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. It's only $2. You can bring your own beer and listen to comedy here every Friday, 8 to 10 p.m., 21st in Florida. It's MutinyRadio.fm. The House of Pride radio show, LGBT radio for everyone. Funky interviews, funky beats, talking drag queens, and much, much more. It's LGBT radio for everyone. Listen live every Wednesday, 6 to 8 p.m. House of Pride Radio, LGBT radio for everyone. Celebrating the considerable contributions of the LGBT community in San Francisco and beyond. Every Wednesday, 6 to 8 p.m. Listen here for hot new local beats by LGBT artists and listen to live interviews. Tune in, turn on, every Wednesday, 6 to 8 p.m., House of Pride Radio with drag queen personalities, Tweeka Turner and Pearl T. Are you sick of reading the news? Do you even bother to read the news anymore? Do you need someone to read it to you because it's just so disgusting and depressing? If so, then the Weekly Review is the show for you. Join Roman Reimer as Roman reads the news, whether it be LGBTQ issues, cannabis legalization, prison abolition, police brutality, or many other issues that sometimes the media just doesn't feel the need to cover. Listen in, Fridays at noon, Mutiny Radio. Roman's also joined by activists, community organizers, artists, and many other great folks working to make the world a better place. Have no fear. The news is here. And if you feel like yelling about it, well then Roman will be yelling with you. The Weekly Review, Fridays at noon on Mutiny Radio. Hello, comrades. This is your comrade, Zach Wiseman, host of government-sponsored program, Communist Folding Chairs, mandated by the Kremlin to occur every Monday, 2 to 4 p.m., broadcast by our comrades at mutinyradio.fm. 
sit, relax, listen to my comrades in stand-up comedy march honorably through their cold balance sets, and other comrades make fun of them. Because in Mother Russia, if you can't laugh about starving for turn-up, and the beat, and attention, you are a capitalist pig, and the KB KGB will visit you shortly. Every Monday, 2 to 4 p.m. Looking to invest in the future of your community? MuniRadio.fm and the Boys and Girls Club Mission Clubhouse needs your help. Please donate to keep the Radio Clash you listen to right now alive on the air every Thursday from 4.50 to 5.50 p.m. Donations are tax deductible. Donate online at www.MuniRadio.fm or just stop by the station at 21st Street and Florida. That's 2781 21st Street and throw some cash in the big glass jar. Stop by to experience live audience friendly shows every day of the week and know that you're supporting the future of the mission by keeping free speech alive for all ages. This PSA is brought to you by your friends and community partners at muniradio.fm. Hi, I'm Chuck Weiss. If you're an old baby boomer like me, pain is probably something you've learned to live with by now. Yes, there are drugs on the market that help, but they come with side effects and shouldn't be used for extended periods of time. But fortunately, there is an effective natural pain reliever available in this state, medical cannabis. Let me tell you about Alta California Botanicals. They're a manufacturer of fine cannabis tinctures. Now you can take your medication in liquid form, much more discreet than pulling out a pipe and lighting up. Alta California Botanicals offers five different formulations, each one addressing a specific medical concern. There are two that are designed for pain, one to be swallowed, of course, and a new one for external use only. I'm going to have to try that one myself on my arthritic fingers. There's a tincture for stress and one for anxiety. They'll certainly keep you mellow. And there's even one for people who suffer from MS. The cannabis tinctures from Alta California Botanicals come in one half ounce bottles. Each batch is laboratory tested and certified free of pesticides and mold. In other words, completely natural and unadulterated. Alta California Botanicals